0: 13. I'm going to read the whole passage okay? and uh, we'll see where we get to. Uh, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and he, that's Jesus, answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will always likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man in a fig tree planted a vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And he answered it, sir, I let it alone this year, also until I dig it around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you're freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, I'd love to do a really snotty voice now, that would be good, wouldn't it? There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come and heal on those days. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whose Satan has bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things. That were done by him. He said, therefore, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a leaven that a woman took, and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying through, toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who have saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I must finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who sent to it. How often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the way you presence yourself with us. We're so thankful that we don't have to go through just the mechanics of having a meeting, even though there's people that we love and friends that we've met and stuff like that. We're so grateful that you choose to come and presence yourself with your people. We're so grateful for that, God. We're so grateful because we know it brings transformation that we ourselves can't bring. We can lift people's spirits, maybe, and cheer people up and uh, sometimes do the opposite as well, I guess. But you, you come and you bring change. And uh, we want to say right at this moment, Holy Spirit, would you come and continue your work with us? So as I'm speaking, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that in all of us, myself included, you will just continue to keep our hearts soft and open to what you want to say and do with us. We need that, Lord. We don't just want to hear something or be engaged with something or even be sort of critiquing something. We want to hear from you. And I pray you'd stir us into that, that Jesus would be more glorified in our lives, that Jesus would be more famous in this city, that Jesus would have his way with his people here. Amen. 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 I don't know... um, as you read the Bible, as you listen to Jesus, as you encounter him, and I know you're working your way through Luke, and you're engaging with, with what Jesus does in that setting, I find it wonderfully inspiring that, that Jesus never sweeps issues under the carpet. So as people come to him, as people engage with him, as we come to engage with him, he, he, isn't, a, he isn't a Jesus that avoids difficult themes and skirts around issues that you're bothering and that's what we get today. I'm actually going to teach you on the first five verses. We'll, we'll catch up a little bit, I'm sure, with other bits and pieces. But that, that's where I want to focus today, which is quite a horrific thing that's going on. There's a Jesus hears about, uh, or the people are talking about a violent act of murder, which isn't your favourite theme or topic for a nice conversation, is it? That there's probably, we're presuming godly people have been been killed in a violent act. And Jesus addresses that. And not only does he address it, he adds into it. He he talks and adds into that and and discusses and brings to the fore a a, a tragic incident that's happened where 18 people have been killed when a tower fell on them. And again, we're not given the details of that, but presumably it's just a tragic accident. There's no, no deliberately... So, you know, someone sabotaging it to get the insurance money, or something. Like that. Looks like it's just a tragic event. where eighteen people have been killed. I don't know if you realise, but this isn't a one-off. The Gospels talk about other tragic events that happen. As you've been in Luke, so I understand you'll know that in Luke chapter nine, you witnessed and heard about the execution of John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin. Tragic an evil man acting to cut down a young man in his prime and in Matthew chapter 2 part of the christmas story no less we get told about innocent little children boys under two being killed that that's in your bible if you didn't know and if you want to read back through other bits and back into the old testament and ahead into the new testament other bits there are incidents of tragedy that happen we're not kept away from that we're not closeted away from that Jesus doesn't expect us to be and he doesn't duck or avoid the issue so if Luke 13 was being written today someone might come to Jesus if he was here today and say did you hear did you hear about that that dreadful tragedy the bombing in Boston that killed and maimed innocent runners and spectators did you hear about that Jesus and Jesus would say yeah he would look them in the eye And he would say, do you think that this happened to those runners and spectators because they were worse sinners than the other people in Boston? Or that factory in Bangladesh that collapsed, killing over 300 people? Do you think those were the worst sinners in Bangladesh and that's why they died? No. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's what Jesus would say in that setting, I believe if that question came to him today. I mean, have you ever had an encounter with such a man as this? There is no one like Jesus. You come to them with a concern, a puzzling question, a theological issue, and he looks you right in the eye and says, do you know what, sunshine? The issue is your soul. The issue is your life. If you don't get right with God's, you're going to perish. Jesus deals directly with a person. No one ever spoke like this. They weren't used to that sort of talking from the religious leaders. They'd hedge it around a bit. No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever slept through a conversation with Jesus. He would say things to the heart. And just, just so you know, I'm sure you're very good in how you understand things. If this had been the widow of one of those guys from the tower or from the, from the murder that Herod had done. I don't particularly believe Jesus would have spoken like this. So Jesus knows what to say and when to say. He knows when to be tender, and he also knows when to be robust. And we read of other incidences in the Gospel where Jesus encountered death, and he wept, and he had compassion, and he engaged with people, and shared their sorrows. So please don't take this as the way you should talk to people necessarily when they're dealing with grief and pain. Okay, This is Jesus talking to a crowd about a theological concern. And basically their way of understanding it is, these people that something went wrong with them, something went wrong in their lives, they must have been dreadful people, mustn't they? That was their concern, that's how they understood it. I don't think we actually understand it like that nowadays. I don't think your friends would ask that sort of question. I'm guessing. So, for example, uh, Derek, sorry to pick on you, but when Derek was sharing his story or when you heard about his, uh, his his issue with his aunt I don't think you would all have thought, yeah, what's he done? He must have done something dreadful for that to happen. We don't think like that. Quite right as well. Okay? We understand that bad things happen. We understand that it isn't just that good things happen to good people. It's not as simple as that. It isn't that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. If you... We've been around the block long enough to know that's not the case, haven't we? We've seen enough of life, and even if you're young, (laughs) you'll have seen enough things happen to other people to know it doesn't work like that. That's how these guys understood it. That's the basis of their question. That's the basis of Jesus addressing them. I don't think my friends would talk like that. I don't think my friends would have that same question. I'm guessing that you don't have that same question. Our question tends to be more, "How, how, how can God let this happen? Why would God allow that to happen? How could a God who's loving let something tragic happen? That seems to be, as I talk to my friends, whether it's people in the church or you know people looking in or people that I'm just befriending and engaging with, that tends to be more their question rather than, a well, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. People don't see it like that. And we tend to then lead us from, from our question, how could God let that happen? 18 people died. I mean, these, these people that were killed by, by Pilate, sorry, by Herods. No, it was, it was Pilate, wasn't it? Yeah, these people killed by Pilate, they, they were worshipping. They were in the right place. <laughs> they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Be like someone coming in this morning and massacring everyone. But they were a church. They are in the right, they worshipping God for goodness sake. Does that give us some sort of immunity from life? I don't think it does. Certainly Derek's story would back it up, it doesn't. It doesn't give us immunity. Things do not go smoothly for us. We are not on a red carpet that just has a gentle ascent that we just take everything of life nice and smoothly in our stride. And if you are, please pray for me because I would love to receive what you've got. But my experience is that that isn't how things work. And, and what that tends to lead, people's perception of how life works and bad things happen and where is God or who is God and what? I think there are four groups of people with actual conclusions that they arrive at based on that. And you can have shades of this. So if you think, well, my friend's a bit of that and a bit of that, that's fine. But I would say it's like this. Some people would say this. If there was a God, then he wouldn't let these sort of things happen. Therefore, there is no God. Okay, you heard that? Maybe if you are a guest this morning, that's, maybe that's what you think. Second group would say, well, if God exists, and it's a big if, but if he exists, then he shouldn't let this happen. He shouldn't let bad things happen. And so therefore, if he does exist, I don't want to trust him. I don't want to put my life in his hands if he's prepared to let things like this happen. Third group would say, yeah, yeah, God exists, but he isn't completely in control and he isn't always able to stop bad things. And a final group would say, God is sovereign, he's in control, he's far wiser than me. So therefore, I choose to trust him even with tragedies I don't understand. I don't know what tragedies you faced, I guess in a room this size, all sorts of different experiences, people with things that have gone wrong, either with them or with people around them. So I can be fairly confident that you're not, Everything's going smoothly for you, not just because of what I've heard from Derek's story this morning. I don't know what you're going to face in the future. Believe in a God who comes and meets with us, but I don't know what your life is going to be. Actually, Derek, you should probably come and do this, actually, because when you started planning for tomorrow, what's going to happen? We have a projection of what we think life is going to look like, but sometimes things happen to change that. So what, what's going to happen to you? I don't know. I haven't got a magic wand. I can't fix things. I've got no easy suggestions. But I do know that life can be tough. We'd uh, In the new year, so just in January, I'd, I did my first funeral. And it was a, a young couple and they'd had a stillborn baby. And uh, they are doing really well but still working their way through it, understandably, and of course we will continue to. Their life will never be the same again. So getting alongside them, caring for them, being very humbled, watching their faith and their trust in Jesus as they're walking through the most tragic thing that's happened. We've had four children, they've all been safely delivered, growing up big and strong and causing lots of problems, but we've never experienced that close to us until... This situation with the dear couple in our church—tragedy. They're a good couple. They do all the right things. He's—he's he's on one of my—he's—he's he's on my wider leadership team. They're good people. Why? Why would this happen to them? I can't give you an easy fix answer. I'm not here to do that. But let me just gently ask you this: if in those categories you're not in that last one—the one that Knows that God is sovereign, that knows God is in control, that knows He's far wiser than you, that therefore chooses to trust Him even with tragic events that happen. You don't understand. If you're not in that category, can I ask you, what hope do you have? What hope do you have that anything can get anybody? See if. Anne Marie, if she. I can't can't see where you are, but when she said about. If. if, Sorry If she's got no hope that there's a God. It's just bad luck, poor thing. If there's got no hope that there's any gods, oh well, that's just a lottery, like you said, one in one in what, what were the odds? One in one in two million. Shame. Bad luck. There's, there's no hope if there's no god. Okay. And you can be as careful as you like. You can check your tyres. You can look both ways when you cross the road. You can only ever holiday in Landudno. You can take life as carefully and as easily as you want to. But you can't guarantee anything. You can't safeguard yourself from every eventuality that might go wrong. You cannot legislate for what might happen to you or the people you're close to. And you know that. If you're honest with yourself, you know that. Whatever steps you might take to do this and do that, and I do hope you do look after yourself as well, that you, 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 know, you exercise and take care and think about what you eat and try and get the most out of life. But that can't guarantee you anything. And if you've got no gods to comfort you, protect you, sustain you, or to offer you another life, then what hope do you have? Simply, I guess, the hope that it just doesn't happen to you. And somehow you avoid life and you are on that red carpet of just a gentle incline, which is nice and easy, and you, you live and you're in your 90s and you, you play a game of golf and you win and you just go to sleep that night and die. And that's, that's your script and that's what you've written and that's going to happen. And that's your hope. That's what you're living for. That's the only way you can do it. And of course, the stark, the stark reality is there are no guarantees. And maybe you do believe there's a God, but you refuse to trust him. Again, what hope do you have then? If you know he's there. Maybe he's let you down. Maybe you think he owes you an explanation. Let me just gently talk into that and say, if he's not done what you wanted him to do in the first place, what makes you think he'll do that again? Or maybe you just think that God is not as in control as he would like to be. I mean, it must be pretty busy work looking after the whole universe, mustn't it? Okay? It must be pretty... You know, so God could easily... Be, I remember when I was a little boy, um, my mum explaining to, to one of my sisters that, uh, that God... My, my sister was having nightmares and worried and just my mum was talking to her and uh, she said, but, but I'm, a, I'm, I'm trying to sleep and, and God must be... He must have sleep time as well. My mum said, no, no, God doesn't, God doesn't sleep. What, well, Never? No, no, he doesn't. You can see, you can see, you know, like we can see children thinking. And just, well, doesn't he even yawn? <laughs> you get this picture of the Almighty trying to, you know, trying to control him and just stifling a yawn as he keep, keep on the job, for goodness sake. God's not like that. See, we, we often, and understandably, we, we portray our own perception of how we are onto what we think God is. And of course, that's just totally not true. We need a much bigger picture of who God is. So when we talk about God being a father, and I want to think, okay, I want my children to understand what being a father is like for me. They'll get a glimpse, but it's only a glimpse. I'm nowhere near a good, as good a father as God is. And that's on my good days. Okay? So what we do is we translate what we see around us and how we understand things. And what we need to do is get our God from the Bible and from our personal interaction with his son Jesus. That's what we need to learn about him. You can't really expect God to cover everything, can you? Well, if this God is not all-powerful, then how can you have any confidence he's going to make any difference in the future? If your way of explaining it is that, well, actually, I've got this bad situation, but poor old God, you can't expect him really to look after it, but I'm praying to him now, hoping that he does something different. Well, how can you be confident? Because if your God isn't powerful enough to do anything about it then, why would he be powerful enough to do anything about it now? And Luke's incident here brings us bang, nose to nose, face to face, eye to eye, up with the notion of who is God. Who is God and what does he do and how do we deal with him? How do we deal with the things that he does that we don't like? How do we engage with that? I mean, have you, have you ever wondered or thought, because often we read our Bibles too quickly. Yeah, we read that, i on to the next bit. I mean, people would have had questions. You would have done. If your family had been one of those 18, that the tower fell on. If your family had been one of those people who'd been worshipping when Pilate killed them, you, you'd have had questions. The closer you are, the more significant the interaction is for us. When, when people are going through pain that we love and we know, it affects us, doesn't it? Yeah? Oh, good, good. We do have a compassionate group. No. It should affect us. There'd be something wrong with us if it didn't. We're not made as robots. And Jesus was affected by things. And so often our questions are if I believe in a God that delivers, if I believe in a powerful God, why does this happen? Why has this happened? Why has this tower fallen on people? Why, why has this happened to me? Why has that happened to my. And we're. Sovereignty of God. if God's who he says he is, how does that work with this? How does that work with my life, with my friend's life? When something's going wrong over here, or wrong over here. Luke wants us to come face to face with that. Jesus doesn't want to just ignore it. I mean, some people would, you'd think, you know, Jesus is doing a meeting, there's lots of people there, and uh, the crowd are talking about this dreadful thing that's happened. So probably you'd want to dispatch a bit. Can you not talk about that? You're bringing the tone of the meeting down. We've come to worship. We've come to rejoice. We don't want to hear about that. No, Jesus deals with it. He takes it head on. He's not embarrassed by it. And not think, Flip, yeah, that's a pain. What a shame we haven't got something good to talk about. He meets it head on and engages with people head on. But if we believe in a God who's powerful and loving, that does give us questions. It does make our minds sometimes. I mean, if, you, if, I, if I give you the other illustration that I talked about in Matthew chapter 2 where little children were killed by Herod's soldiers. In that story, and that's part of the Christmas story for goodness sake, in that story, Joseph was the dad looking after Jesus and how did he know to get away? Anyone know? God told him. Angel came. Angel came to warn Joseph to take Jesus out of the way because he was in danger. We're not told of any angels coming to the parents of those other kids that were killed. And if that was your child that was killed, you'd want to know why. Where's God? Why is there no angel for me? This is a God that loves to intervene. Why didn't he come? Where was he? That would be a good question, wouldn't it? be a real question. Well, I did say there was no quick fix. How do we understand the sovereignty of God? Is God just a Father Christmas figure that we make Effectively, where we make God in our image. Where we decide what God can and can't be and how that works. And actually, when we're, trying to, when we're trying to explain to our friends what we're really trying to do is make God as palatable as we possibly can. Or do we say, this is God. Fear him, serve him, love him, engage with him. See, God is only good and always only good. There's no sense ever, in any respect, is he evil. And evil can have no place either in the very nature of God or in the created order as God created it or in the heaven that God will recreate. So there's nothing evil, there's nothing capricious. God's not subject to mood swings. He doesn't have good days and bad days. He is good and only good. And yet in the Bible, we also get told of evidences which indicate God is bringing both good and evil. So So in in Job chapter 2, Job says this. He says this to his wife. Uh, Guys, this isn't necessarily how to speak to your wife. He said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Isaiah, writing as God is speaking, says, I form the lights and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. In Lamentations, the writer says, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? So how do we understand How do we understand what the Bible affirms regarding God and good and evil? Well, Don Carson says this. God stands behind good and evil in somewhat different ways. That is, he stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. What does that mean? Um, Let's see if I can illustrate that. Uh, Derek, can I pick on you again? Do you mind? Okay, so we've got a gentleman behind you. Sorry, I don't know your name. What's your name, David? So David is behind Derek, and Kevin is also behind Derek. Sorry for those those of you in the front. You go find that hard, but one is right behind, and that's what asymmetric means. So so Kevin is behind Derek, but asymmetrically, he's not directly behind. Okay, can you see that? Can you? I, Conscious, you probably can only see tops of people's heads at the back there. Okay? So, what what does that mean? That means God's. He's not the cause of evil directly, but He is the cause of good directly. So, God doesn't cause evil. When evil occurs, God is not the primary actor willing it to happen, but He is the ultimate actor who directs evil according to His own good deeds. So, we have to be careful that we don't in Wanting to make God palatable, that we don't make God impotent. Do you understand? Because the moment I say God has nothing to do with evil, then that means that anything evil happens, God's saying, Oh my stars, what's happened over here? I didn't realise that. Oh my goodness, what's a met? Oh, I take my ass off the ball there. No, God knows what's going to happen, and He directs it according to his own good end. So when Joseph, for example, him of Technicolor fame, fame um, when he talks about what's happened to him and his horrific story where his brothers sold him into slavery, nice chaps. And then he went through a horrific period of, of problems and difficulties. and Eventually, of course, end of the story, we like the end of the story, became prime minister and brothers bowing down to him. Yeah, We, like, we forget the middle bit, we read that very quickly. I mean, two years in prison? What's that all about, God? Why does he have to spend two years in prison just because some geezer forgot to do something? If you were writing the script, is that what would happen? And Joseph interpreted the dream and the chief butler said, I'm so grateful, thank you very much. I must run off and see Pharaoh now when I get released. No, he forgets for two years. Thanks. And God allows that. God lets that happen. Joseph is... The one who's not benefiting from that. He has to stay another two years in prison. And of course you and I would say, that's fine. We don't mind. All in your sovereign purposes, Lord. I don't think. (laughs) There would be a resentment about it. There would be a struggle. God, what are you doing? And Joseph says this. He said this to his brothers. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The brothers' responsibility for their evil act is not dismissed. Joseph doesn't say, Oh, you were lovely and you know, you just had a bit too much to drink that day, and it was a squabble, and it was my fault as well, and hey brothers fall out and you know, just you just had a good idea, so it seemed, and you hadn't thought through the consequences. He doesn't no, you intended to harm me. He doesn't dial it down. You intended to harm me. You're responsible. You chose to do this with deliberate evil planning. But God was fully aware, allowed it to take place, deliberately planning to bring great good, which was the saviour of many lives. So, if we reflect back on Pilate's evil act of murdering these Galileans, Pilate is fully responsible. Or Herod's evil act of murdering these young children. Herod is fully responsible. God did not make them do something they didn't want to do, they did what they wanted to do. I hope you're aware of that. We've, I've got several friends that are much more aware of some of the things in the Bible now because they've read particular websites in terms of atheist websites telling you all the flaws in the Bible and all the attitudes. so I'm coming across people that are much more knowledgeable about the Bible because they've read things that people are telling them that means that God is like this. I don't know if that's your experience. But I've had people throw things at me about how can the God, God of the Old Testament say this? Is that the God you worship? In fact, I was looking at a website recently and it was an atheist website and it was encouraging people how to debate with Christians. He said, you need to watch out because a lot of Christians now will not want to talk about the Old Testament. So they're they're working hard at trying to make sure they can see things in Jesus that aren't lovely. Because a lot of Christians are saying, yeah, but but Jesus is lovely so we're not really interested in the Old Testament. No, No, we believe it's true. We believe we understand about God from the Old Testament and we learn and experience it and of course it all points towards our need of the cross. So we don't disengage with it we don't try and make God palatable. We demonstrate how what we read in the Old Testament points to you and my and our friends' desperate need of a saviour, which is why he came, so that we could be rescued. More about that in a minute. So God didn't make Herod or Pilate do things they didn't want to do. And yet God was fully aware before, during and after these awful events. And so in that end, in this instance, as with some others, we actually have to trust him, knowing his goodness still to be active in bringing good out of evil. I don't know know if anyone's ever said to you, when you've been going really through the mill, and things are tough, and someone said, yeah, but God will bring good out of it. That doesn't always help. It doesn't always help. Because actually you may... Not be able to see that. And even if you can see it, it doesn't mean necessarily you're going to be grateful for the events that brought it about. So for example, this this family, this couple that have had the stillborn baby, Esme Grace, that we've cremated. His, his family aren't saved. And we can see a softening in them as they've engaged with us on it and just appreciating the the love and the friendship that the church has given to to their son and his wife. But they're never going to, our guys are never going to say, even if the whole family gets saved, they're never going to say, okay, so that was good then, wasn't it? Because they know God could have done it a different way. I mean, we're talking about God who's all sovereign. God isn't thinking, crumbs, this family is such a tough nut to crack. The only way I can do it, the only possible way I can do it is by this. So sometimes we're just not going to understand things. And I'm sure you haven't got people here like this, but you know what? Some believers can be really trite. Oh, the joy of the Lord is your strength when you're going through the mill and things are tough and you can't see a way out. And yet it's good to inspire people with biblical truth, but we also need to get alongside and walk with people, hold their hands, be prepared to be a shoulder for them to cry on, a person for them to shout at, express their frustration, their anxiety, and their grief and their anguish. And Jesus is very clear in this case. I think his answer would be the same to our question as it is to their question. He's emphasising the sovereignty of God. The focus is not what God ought to do, but rather what the questioners ought to do. What he speaks out doesn't change the awful events. Jesus doesn't offer a reason, does he? He doesn't say, yeah, of course, this happened because, and this happened because. But he does speak hope. Did you notice that? He speaks hope to them. Because he says, unless you do something, your life's gone too. There's a way out for you. So one of the important things to do is to try, when we're going through that, when we're helping people, it's not necessary to focus on the wrong questions. Where's God? Why? How can he let this happen? Those are natural and understandable questions. But they're not the most important ones. The most important one is, God, will you come to me? Please come, God. Where are you? I want you. When tragedy happens... Death is absolutely thrust in front of us, and we can't avoid it because it's in the news, or more significantly, in our own lives. We need to be careful not to ask the wrong questions. We don't always know what God is doing. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. I know you. I mean, I can sense. I can sense just the theological knowledge here and the awareness where you're all, you're all with God like that, and uh, you know, you know, you know, you know what's going to happen, and you could probably tell me what I had for breakfast, or why, well, because God's told you. Okay, we don't always know what God is doing. And actually, here's a little clue we shouldn't expect to. Because it tells us that his ways, what? They're not like our ways. That's a bit of a clue. That's a bit of a clue that what I'm doing and what God's doing might not be the same thing. That's a bit of a clue for us. God doesn't give us... All the answers the Bible teaches us we see in part. We see dimly. One day when we're with Jesus, maybe some of those questions will get answered or maybe they won't seem as significant then as they do now. God doesn't give us answers necessarily to our questions. He does give us Jesus, which gives us hope. Someone who's suffered and died and risen to take away our sin, give us new life. And get us to his kingdom. So if you're a Christian, your pre-Christian friends need to know that there is an offer of hope. They need to know that. One of the ways that you can demonstrate there's lots of things you can do chiefly by loving them, caring for them, getting an opportunity to speak out. But one of the ways you can demonstrate that is actually living for Jesus and trusting him even when life is tough or tragic. So I think that makes people ask questions. How are you able to survive when there seems to be no hope? Why 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 are you coping with this? Why are you stepping on with this? Why are you pressing on with your life? Why are you still able to smile for goodness sake? People will, will observe that about us. See, we're enabled to know joy, but we're also to know the limitations of this life. And to know that there's a hope of a better future. Paul actually considers that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Stay on that. That is, one day, you will look back from a place of great splendour and rejoicing, and you will agree with Paul that the glory you're now experiencing is so amazing that the sufferings you endured are insignificant by comparison. I don't mean they're meaningless. Okay? Okay? I'm not saying that. Paul doesn't say, "I'll oh, just chin up, smile, get through, sing a happy song, pretend it doesn't matter. No, he doesn't say that. Paul would know. Paul would know. He went through the mill. He went through the ringer. So when he's talking about sufferings, he's not just talking about the fact that his tea was cold one morning or he missed the bus or his bike had a puncture. Some of us can think God doesn't love us when that happens. Paul's not talking about that, he's talking about real meaningful suffering. And he says that we will see something so wonderful one day that we will agree and look back and think, okay, that was tough what I experienced, but it's nothing compared to this. That should inspire you. It should inspire you. It doesn't magic away what you're walking through now, but it tells you that as you walk through it faithfully, where you're going to, what you're going to get to, is something so incredible that the reality of the pain now is insignificant. So I'm not saying that to minimise what you're going through. You understand that, don't you? Okay. I'm giving you a picture of something that helps you understand. Therefore, what you're going through is awful. Therefore, how glorious must it be to be in the presence of Jesus and to think that what we went through that was so tough actually is insignificant. One day, every tear will be wiped away by God himself, We will agree that the sufferings we endured bear no comparison to the glory we now see. There's a glorious end, there's a victorious outcome. I'm coming to a close. Jesus offers the hope, but no one else can. No one else can speak out into your situation, into my situation, into that situation we read about. No one else can speak out truth like that. Only Jesus. Hope comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God becomes Son of Man, so that the sons of men can become sons of God. He lives under the spotlight, serving others, caring for them. Like we see later on in that passage that we read, the whole thing through. A woman disabled for eight years, eighteen years, sorry, healed. Why? Because Jesus acts with compassion. Jesus comes with mercy. Jesus comes with power. Jesus isn't who he says he is. She's got no hope. Jesus acts in power and compassion. Later on, right at the end of the chapter, we see him lamenting, probably weeping over Jerusalem. This is this is a God of compassion. This isn't a God of slick answers. Okay, there's a tragedy. I'm just going to tell you to point three, subsection six, bang, off you go, press that and it be done. Next question. There's no politician's answer. Apologies if you're a politician. Okay? It's no quick soundbite. This is a God who cares. We see him weeping over Jerusalem. He's not distant over human tragedy. Even in the midst of grief and anguish, he meets us there. That would be that would be my, the couple at my church. That would be their story. Throughout this awful tragedy, they've known God be with them. God come to them. God strengthen them. God talk to them. God love them. It says in Psalm eighteen twenty-eight. For it is you who lights my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. Only He can do that. Only He can do that. The one who made you, who knows you, is the one who can hold you through tragedy. And that offer of hope is there for you to God can come to you. God can come and meet you, so whatever your story, has been, is, or will be. God is never outside of that. You always have hope. A God who loves you, a God who calls you to repent so that you don't perish, who sends his son to provide the way of escape, gives his spirit to strengthen us and sustain us through dark and difficult days, leading ultimately to everlasting life where there is no sadness, no sickness, no sin, no suffering. That's the journey we're on. That's good news. Okay? That's good news that one day all the tragedy and the trauma and just life's difficulties won't, won't be there for us to walk through. I mean, imagine waking up and being in a place where there is no sin. Where everything is perfect. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? There would be no one. You wouldn't have to look out for things. You'd be in a perfect place. Amazingly, Jesus doesn't come to lecture us. He doesn't come to moralise over us. He doesn't come to berate us. He comes to rescue us. He comes to save us. He comes to engage with us in a mess that's of our own making. I mean, isn't that incredible? That God would do that for people like you, and me. The mess of my own making, my own rebellion, my own sin, my own turning against and away from God's. Jesus doesn't say, sorry sunshine you made your bed, you're lying it. Your choice, let's go through it. Have you done it once? Oh, you've done it more than once. Doesn't look good. Jesus comes to rescue people like me that at one time would have blasphemed his name. That's amazing. God's For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. That's your hope. Your hope is that one day you can stand before God and be totally accepted by him, not because of anything you've done, not because you put in the offering, not because you went to a prayer meeting, not because you came here this morning, not because of that, but simply and only and essentially because of the death of his son. That's your hope. If you haven't got that hope, talk to someone about that. Maybe someone who bought you or someone sitting next to you. I'm happy to talk to you as well, but these guys here will know you better. But talk to him. Talk about it. Turn to him. Give yourself to him. Because of him, you do not need to perish. That's the offer of hope that Jesus has for you. And if you're already a believer, that's the offer of hope that Jesus has for your family, for your friends, for your work colleagues, for your neighbours, for people in your community. They do not need to perish. There's hope for them. Can we stand? I wonder if I could get you, just to use your imaginations a little bit. You look like a fairly creative lot. okay? Um, I want you to imagine friends, family, neighbours, work colleagues, people that you know, that don't love Jesus, that don't worship him, would maybe even speak out his name with hostility. You probably don't know anyone like that. I do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. All right. I want you to imagine, instead of them speaking out Jesus' name with hostility, I want you to imagine them speaking out in adoration. Can you do that? You might need to concentrate really hard for some people. But that's what faith does. Faith takes a situation now and recognises that Jesus died for that person, loves that person, even in their hostility. And his blood is enough to bring them to a place of adoration. Do you believe that? Why why don't you just imagine that and just start to engage with God on that. Talk to him about that. Maybe you need to soften your heart a little bit. (laughs) Maybe maybe you, you sort of, yeah, and they deserve it. Because the way they talk about Jesus. and God, Holy Spirit, come to us, I pray. Soften our hearts for those that would even maybe seek to cause us harm. That would be opponents, that would be people, people that would be antagonistic towards our message. Would be antagonistic towards you. God, would you save them? Thank you that we read about the Apostle Paul breathing threats And causing great damage before he got saved. And you knowing all about that and laughing. Because you were sovereign over it all in the first place. I pray for some of those people that we can think about that maybe would even breathe threats over us. That would speak your name with hostility and antagonism. God, would you give us faith to believe that you can bring transformation to them. Maybe you just need to name people before God. You don't need to tell me. Maybe you just need to speak out their name and ask God to help you. Maybe he'll give you faith for specific things that you can do or words of knowledge that will help you just to engage with them. But why don't you you do business with Jesus now? He's their only hope. He's their only hope. if you know you have been going through the mill or still are why don't you reach out to him he's the only one that offers hope I don't know where you are with him on that in terms of your, your level of questioning or your sense of acceptance, but he wants to meet you in it. He wants to hold you in it. He wants to love you through it. Don't turn away in your frustration, your anguish, and your pain. Don't turn away from the one that can care for you and nurture you through it. Why did that happen then? I don't know. And maybe he won't explain to you why it happens. But I still believe and know and trust that he can meet you in it. So why don't you just reach out to him now as we come so close? And the rest of us, let's speak out our thanks. Let's speak out our thanks that we do have hope. That Jesus has made a way for us, that the Son of God left the glory of heaven so that you and I could be rescued. Why why don't you just speak out your adoration to him as we finish, thanking him, worshipping him, speaking out your love, your affection, your adoration to him. No God who shrugs his shoulders. This isn't a God who deflects with a with a a quick answer, an easy answer. This is a God who engages with us, who loves us, and and then we're done. Why don't we close with one or two of you leading us out? Why don't one or two of you speak out? Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk.